0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit insidecrosspoint.com. Good morning, how are you? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we find ourselves today in verse 26, 27, and 28, the end of this glorious chapter in Hebrews. As you're finding that, let me mention just a couple things by way of announcement or just an FYI. Uh, We're going to end chapter 7 today. And then next week we're going to take a one week break from Hebrews. Uh, Tyler Kirkpatrick is going to preach a standalone message. Um, The pastors are going to be away this week for most of the week in the middle of the week to a conference in North Carolina at the pillar network, a a network that we're connected to. And I'm staying a couple days longer. And then Friday I'm having just a very minor surgery. And so just in case um, I'm not feeling well after that, Tyler's going to preach next week. Uh, Last time I had surgery on my shoulder, I tried to preach and um, uh, it didn't go as well, at least for me personally. I don't know, maybe you thought it was okay, but I thought it was a terrible sermon. So uh, Friday I'm going to have surgery, so we're going to Tyler's going to preach, and then we'll get back into Hebrews chapter eight the next week. Also, uh, we mentioned last Sunday that we prayed for Frank Rubio, a former member of CrossPoint, who broke a record for the longest time in space for any American astronaut. We prayed for his safe return to uh, this place called earth last week, and he did arrive safely uh, and is back home in Houston. Praise God. And uh, so we had emailed his wife, Deb, and said, hey, we're going to be praying for him Sunday morning. And so uh, I didn't know you could do this. I didn't know this was technologically possible, but but last Sunday afternoon, we were just kind of hanging around at my house uh, after lunch, and I got, a, uh, I got a phone call on my cell phone, and it was a number that I didn't Uh, recognize and the caller ID just said U.S. government. So of course I didn't answer it. (laughs) I mean, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I'm not answering that. And I got a a voicemail from Frank Rubio in space in the International Space Station. And he said, Brad, I heard you guys were praying for me. Deb told me, uh, I'm gonna call back in an hour. I know this may be an unfamiliar number, but if you can pick it up, pick up. (laughs) And so he did, he called back. And I talked to Frank while he was in space. And I got that voicemail saved. I'm never deleting that voicemail ever. (laughs) It was quite a thrill. And uh, a couple times we talked for a couple minutes. I think he called uh, John Fott as well, who he worked with when he was a doctor at Forbidding. <laughs> and uh, Frank, uh, every few 30 seconds or so in our conversation, he would get a little muffled, you know, like it, it, there's the cell reception. Imagine that wasn't that good. And so I said, hey, Frank, I, what did you say? Can you repeat yourself? And he says, yeah, I'm sorry. He says, sometimes the reception isn't too good up here. I'm only going 17,000 miles an hour right now. But Frank sends his greetings and love and thanks you, uh, his former church, for praying for him. Well, let me read the text, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we'll catch you up on the context. We're ending uh, this portion of Hebrews in this argument of the author of Hebrews where he is arguing for the superiority of Jesus over and against Old Testament priests. It's a glorious passage, and these three verses... are are some of the high points of all of Hebrews. So let me read and then pray. The writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Amen. Here's the three headings of our time in this passage that I want to orient and organize my sermon around. Here's three headings that I think this passage is saying. First is that Jesus is superior. Secondly, that Jesus is sufficient. And thirdly, that Jesus is the Son. So let me pray and ask the Lord to help as we look at this text. Father, thank you for your word. What a privilege that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness through your word. And the Spirit that has written your word through human authors and illuminates it to our minds and makes it alive to our hearts. Do that afresh. I pray this morning, help me to give the true sense of the word so that we might understand it better and make us more like Jesus as a result of our time in this passage. and for our friends that are here that do not yet believe in Jesus in a saving way. They haven't yet been reconciled to you through your son. I pray by your grace that you would give that gift of faith and a new heart so that they might believe. And as we on this first Sunday of October celebrate and remember the Lord's work on the cross through the through receiving communion together as a church family, I pray that you would meet us, that we would nourish ourselves. On Christ as we take the bread and the cup this morning, and I pray it all for your glory and our good in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, Ambiguity and vagueness when you're speaking about spiritual things does not really provoke much opposition. In fact it's kind of in vogue in our culture today to practice a kind of general deism, a sense that God is there, but a real lack of specificity about who God is. You can get away with any reference to some sort of religious belief as long as you keep it vague enough to where nobody is offended. That's why you see athletes that uh, sometimes get propped up by people in Christian circles as some sort of model of sort of theological virtue when they're not, and all they do is at the end of a game in a post-game interview, just acknowledge the man upstairs. Well, what is that really? And they're, oh, he's a Christian, Let's, let's prop him up and have him speak at all of our events. It's just ridiculous, but don't get me started. I'm sounding a little grumpy. But vagueness and ambiguity doesn't offend. Just yesterday, I happened to be watching a football game we're the quarterback for the University of Southern California. His name is Caleb Williams, who's pretty good. The announcer said when he made a unique sort of throw, he said, he said that, that God came down from heaven and touched Caleb Williams's right arm and made it into a lightning bolt. And although I think there's some truth to that, I think Caleb Williams is really, really gifted and can throw the ball like very few other people. Nobody's offended by this announcer on TV saying that God blessed this particular young man with athleticism to throw a football really well. But if the announcer would have said that the creator of heaven and earth, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who became a man, who who laid down his life on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of all those and only those who would trust in him, Jesus, that giver of all good gifts, the creator of heaven and earth, he alone from whom all blessings flow, he's the one that has given Caleb Williams the, the, the breath to live and move and have his being. And, and Caleb Williams has no hope apart from Christ. And yes, he's given him a good right arm, but Caleb Williams' hope is in Christ alone and only Christ if he trusts in him. Now that, that's a different story, right? And that, I mean, come on. The natives would have been charging the gates if he would have said that on national TV. My point is, is that it's one thing to just sort of generally believe in in a kind of benevolent deity. It's another thing to believe in the biblical God who shows his face in the person of Jesus Christ. And our text this morning is a biblical picture of who God is in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. Three headings, Jesus is superior, Jesus is sufficient, thirdly, Jesus is the Son. I want us to first look at verse 26, Jesus is superior. Now, our author is finishing up his argument of how Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. That's really the whole point of Hebrews, is that Jesus is better than anything that has come before him in the religious system of Judaism. Because the the recipient of this letter is, In first century Rome, the Hebrew Christians who were ethnically Jews, who had trusted in Jesus, they trusted in the testimony of the Jewish apostles, and and they were believing in Jesus, were being tempted, they were being vulnerable to going back to the Old Covenant, back to Judaism, back to trusting in the law, back to trusting in the priesthood as their mediator between God and men because of the persecution that they were facing as Christians in first century Rome. And so the writer of Hebrews, this pastor, it's one long sermon, it's 13 chapters, it's basically one long sermonic exhortation encouraging them to not draw back, to not give up on Jesus, don't go back, but hold fast to Jesus and draw near. And here, one of the high points of this letter, he picks out several aspects of Jewish life, like Moses and the promised land, and here the priesthood, and eventually we'll get into the covenant and the sacrifices in the coming chapters, and he takes them, these high points of Jewish life, and he shows how Jesus is better than all of these things that came before that were not unconnected to Jesus, but were mere shadows that were pointing ahead to Jesus. And he says, don't go back to the shadow, stay with the substance. And so his argument for most of chapter 7, all of chapter 7, in fact, has been that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. And he bases his argument on a comparison of Jesus to this Old Testament figure, Melchizedek, who is this mysterious man who shows up at the very early parts of the Bible, even before the law came through Moses, even before the priesthood was established, and Melchizedek becomes a forerunner, an early priest who shows up out of nowhere, who has no beginning and no end, metaphorically speaking, not that he wasn't truly born like a real human and truly died like a real human, but he is a mysterious figure that has no, at least, descriptive beginning and end, and he becomes an Old Testament shadow an Old Testament forerunner, a picture that the New Testament then draws on, specifically the writer of Hebrews draws on, and he says Jesus is kind of like this figure in Genesis chapter 14 who shows up, and Abraham, through whom the nation of Israel comes, and through whom ultimately Moses comes, and Aaron comes, and the priesthood and the law, they are bowing down to this superior priest Melchizedek and so the point of analogy that our writer in Hebrews is making is that Jesus is kind of like Melchizedek points us to Jesus he has no narrative beginning or end so Jesus is the creator no beginning no end, the Alpha and the Omega so in that sense Jesus, Melchizedek resembles Jesus, and the Old Testament that would come through Abraham, in a sense, bowed down to Melchizedek, so the Old Testament priesthood, the law, the system of sacrifices, the whole book of Leviticus is subordinate, it's pointing to Jesus, Jesus is better, so don't go back to the old system. And now, he's going to end his argument with a kind of knockout punch, a haymaker, and what's that haymaker? It's the superior character of Jesus over and against the high priests. So he's drawing a con- contrast between Jesus and his character and the priests of the Old Testament and their flawed character. And he says that Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Now this brings up something very very important. And I think this is the heart of this text that we that we want to see. We need to have, this text is pointing us to, a biblical and right and multi-dimensional view of Jesus. Jesus is not merely one who comes to identify with us, as important as that is. But he is also, and this is the beauty of the complexity of Jesus, he is the exalted one. So if you remember earlier on in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, there's these beautiful passages. So if you have your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 7, just flip to the left a little bit to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says that Jesus himself partook of the same things that we did through death, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And then verse 17 says that Jesus had to be made like his brothers, that's us, and Every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Verse 18 then says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So Jesus identifies with us. He he lowers himself. He condescends. And and there's that beautiful passage in Hebrews chapter 4. Just look at the end of Hebrews chapter 4. It says that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. In other words, he's come down. That's referring to his incarnation. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And look at this verse 15. Some of those beautiful words of Jesus, uh, describing Jesus in all of the Bible. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus... The point that he's making in these early chapters of Hebrews is that Jesus identifies with us. He's like us. He understands us. But if that's all that the Bible would say about Jesus, it would be an insufficient picture of Jesus because Jesus doesn't just merely understand us or get us, but he is also above us. He's he's holy. So there's this beautiful two dimensions of Jesus that we see. In Hebrews, he is the incarnate, tender, merciful priest, and he is the exalted, holy, sovereign God. And both of these things are who Jesus is in his person and in his work. And here's the point that I think is the heart of this passage is that we need both. If Jesus is merely a priest who's tender-hearted and understands us. He just leaves us in our sins. We need somebody that can do more than just identify with us. We need somebody who can actually save us out of those things. But if he's just an exalted God, then there will be no relationship, there will be no connection, no, 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 no beauty of relationship, but no mercy. But Jesus is not just the exalted one, he's the one who's condescended and understands. And so look at verse 26, look at the way the author describes him. He uses this beautiful word. He says it's fitting that we should have such a high priest. He's exactly what we need. He's he's low and high. He's tender and ferocious all at the same time. And what does it say about him? It says that he's holy, speaks to his infinite divinity. He is God in the flesh. He's innocent, he's free from sin, even though he identifies with us. He's completely free from what has put us in this place of sin. He's unstained. There's no uncleanness. The sin around the world has not touched him. The sin of the people that he that he interacted with during his earthly ministry has not touched him, and he's separated from sinners. He's wholly apart from them, even though he identifies with them. How can these two things be joined together in one person. It can only be God that can do this, and he's exalted above the heavens. I think a beautiful description of this verse is uh, a, a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, a great American theologian back in the colonial days in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards, one of his most famous sermons, one of his most beautiful sermons, is this sermon called The Diverse Excellencies of Jesus Christ. And in this sermon, he ponders... How these, two th- how these uh, characteristics meet together in Jesus and how even that is a kind of uh, a display or a kind of witness of how Jesus is God, because how can, these, how can these things that seem to be on the opposite ends of the spectrum of characteristics meet together in one person? So let me just read to you the headings of, of, of uh, Edwards' sermon so that they give you a flavor for how, how Jesus is both the humble one who identifies and also the sovereign one who is over and how he is both in one moment. This is what Edward says in his sermon. He is in Jesus, the diverse excellencies that meet together in Jesus Christ. He is infinite in his highness and infinite in his condescension. So he's holy above, but he's with us. He's infinite in his justice He's infinite in his grace. How can those two things be together? Only in Christ. He's infinite in his glory, and yet he is the lowest in his humility. He's infinite in his majesty, but yet he's transcendent in his meekness. That's an interesting way of describing meekness, transcendent. He has the deepest reverence towards God, But he also is equal with God. How can those two things fit together were it not for the triune nature of God and the person of Jesus Christ, he has an exceeding spirit of obedience to the father and his will with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. He has absolute sovereignty and perfect resignation, obviously a reference to the father's will of the cross as the way to redemption. And he has finally complete self-sufficiency and entire trust and reliance on God. Edwards' sermon, I think, helps us see just the beautiful, the diverse excellencies of Jesus Christ, which I think is part of the point that this author is bringing out here at the end, is that yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus is a merciful high priest, but friends, we need more than a merciful high priest we need not somebody who can merely sit in the ditch with us and sympathize with us, but we need a Savior who can lift us out of the ditch, and only Jesus can do that. And Jesus is both. He's the tender priest, and he's the sovereign, holy, separated priest. Why is this important? Because if we only, if we only see one picture of Jesus, it's really an insufficient Savior. Just somebody who can identify with us can't save us, but somebody who's wholly disconnected from us above us can identify with us. And Jesus is that one mediator. He, he, remember that beautiful phrase in 1 Timothy 2, he's the one mediator between God and men. Just I want you to meditate on the, on the beauty of Jesus, who he is, not only does he represent God to us in his holiness and his separateness, but he represents us to God by identifying with us, by knowing our our weaknesses and and taking them onto himself in a way where he remains completely pure and unstained, but in a way where he puts himself forward as a substitute on our behalf. And friends, this this is the apex of the glory of the person and work of Jesus. And this is the end of the argument that this is the type of priest that we have, a priest who identifies and a priest who is above at the same time. Friends, we need a priest like this. And I would say in our culture, in our world, we probably, it's probably easier for us to, to gravitate towards a priest who identifies with us in our weaknesses and to underappreciate the holiness and the majesty of who Jesus is. Which leads us to the second point. Jesus first is superior, then secondly, Jesus is sufficient. Verse 27, because he is this holy one, unstained, separated from sinners. Verse 27, Jesus is sufficient. He has no need like those high priests meaning the old testament high priests that the authors comparing him to that he's saying Jesus is better than he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself so he's saying that Jesus is he's he's more than just somebody who identifies with you he's the holy one who has enough holiness to satisfy the punishment for all the sins of all the people that would ever trust in him through the ages. He is sufficient. He's that type of high priest. Okay, and I want to show this to you from the scriptures. Now, I'm going to about to take a risk, okay? I need you to pay attention to me. I'm about to read almost all of Leviticus chapter 16, okay? And I want you Now, I know this isn't the verse, this isn't the chapter that maybe gets you up in the morning when you're reading devotions. But Leviticus chapter 16 is what this verse is based on. And it is one of the most important scenes in all of the Bible. It is the Day of Atonement. So I see, I hear, I hear Bible pages flipping to Leviticus chapter 16. And quite frankly, it's making my heart sing. Keep flipping, church. Keep flipping. It's wonderful. First couple books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Leviticus is a book about the Levites, the priesthood. It's a book of instruction about the duties of these Old Testament priests that Hebrews 7 has been all about, saying that Jesus is better, he's more sufficient than anything that these Old Testament Levites did. And all of Leviticus chapter 16 is about the duties, the qualifications, and the various types of offerings, whether they were thank offerings or, or or guilt offerings or sin offerings. They were all about the duties of the priests to bring about reconciliation with God in a temporary sense, which was meant to be, and this is the point of the law, not meant to ultimately solve the problem, but to point us. To Jesus, who is the true and better and final priest, who finally does what the Old Testament was merely pointing to. And so, let me read to you the high point of Leviticus chapter 16. And Leviticus 16 is right in the middle of the book of Leviticus. And that's important for you to understand. The structure of Hebrew thought, oftentimes when you're going through the Old Testament, if you're looking at the point of an argument... The, the 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 heart, the high point of the argument would often be in the middle of the argument. And, and so it, it's kind of like the beginning. The beginning's right here, and it's moving towards the middle, and it makes the the big point in the middle, and then it moves back out. It's called the chiastic structure. The middle of the argument is the high point. Whereas maybe in English, in the Western world, we like we like ramp up all the way to the end, and then we finally say... And then, finally, finally, Georgia won, barely at the end, right? That's, that's the way we do our arguments. Just want to make sure you're paying attention. But in Hebrew thought, the main point is in the middle, and Leviticus 16 is in the very middle of this description, and the high point is the very high point of what the priests were to do, which was yearly on the Day of Atonement, to offer sacrifices for the people. Now, I want you to see, I want you to read with me now. I'll read, listen, do your best to pay attention. These are important words. Leviticus 16, talking about the Day of Atonement. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. Now, let me pause there and just say Aaron was Moses' brother, and he was like the first great high priest. So the law comes through Moses in the early parts of Exodus, Now, this is way after Melchizedek, right? So just to give you an appreciation, Melchizedek shows up early in Genesis. He's this priest that Abraham offers sacrifices to. He's kind of like this picture of Jesus. He stands outside and above the law that comes later. Now we're generations later. Moses and Egypt have been rescued from Egypt, and now they're at Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law, and part of that law was a prescription of this priesthood, the tribe of the Levites that Moses and Aaron came from, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this priesthood had these duties to be the the go-betweens, the mediators, the reconcilers between God and Israel. And Aaron, who is Moses' biological brother, is the first high priest of Israel. And so Leviticus is about Aaron and his sons and their duties according to the law, to offer sacrifices. And uh, Aaron's two sons, you can read back in Leviticus chapter 10, did not uh, obey the prescriptions of the law and just entered haphazardly into the presence of God and were struck down and died. Happy Sunday to you. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of his sons Aaron when they drew before the Lord and, and died. So that should just tip us off like, man, God is serious about this. He's serious about his holiness. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. You can't just saunter into the presence of God in the Old Testament before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Just put yourself in this picture. Think about this. He's saying he's warning Moses, tell Aaron to take this serious. Verse 3, but in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on, think of it all that Aaron had to do to enter the presence of the Lord on behalf of the people. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. He shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and put them on. And he shall take them from the congregation of the people of Israel, two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. More on that in just a moment. This is beautiful, beautiful picture, beautiful shadow. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And what does Hebrews... The verse we read in Hebrews says that Jesus doesn't need to do that because he is sinless. So already, Jesus is better than anything in the Old Testament because Aaron and all the priests that came from him needed to atone for their own sins before they, they had to square away their own business before they could do Israel's business. But Jesus doesn't need to do that because he is completely holy. He's separated from sinners. I lost my point. Where was I? Verse 6. Aaron shall offer okay in his house, verse 7, Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent meeting. This is fascinating, these two goats. Okay, he's offered sacrifices for himself. Now he's got these two goats that he's going to do something on behalf of Israel with. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Now, Azazel is a mysterious word. We don't really know much about it, but we read on, and it basically... I think, means scapegoat. It's this this place, it's this reference to this second goat that is going to be a scapegoat. What's that all about? Okay, verse 9, And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness To Azazel, Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Think about all that he had to do that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony that he does not die. And he shall take some of, the bull of the, some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of his mercy seat on the east side, and in the front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then, verse 15, okay, he's atoned for his own sin. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring it, remember, these are the two goats, one that's going to be the sin offering, one that's going to be sent away to this place in the wilderness. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So that's, that's the moment where this, that's this, this, this blood is being sprinkled, atoning for the sins of the people. Thus, he shall make atonement. For the holy place, because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins, and so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement into the holy place, until he comes out and made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. In other words, Israel... Don't draw near because only the priest can do this. And he's got to wash himself. And now he's got to atone for your sins. So nobody draw near. Then he shall go out, verse 18, to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people in Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning... For the holy place in the tent of meeting at the altar, he shall present the live goat back to this other goat now. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put on them, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it Away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. In other words, a, a priest in, in training. The goat, by the way, this is the, where we get the word scapegoat. The scapegoat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and then he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Just get this picture here. Okay, there's these. He's, he's done all these sacrifices for himself, which Jesus doesn't need to do because he's holy. And then he has to kill one goat for the sins of the people to satisfy the holiness of God. And then, as another picture of the neediness of the people, he symbolically transfers the guilt and the sin of the people on this one goat. And then there's this one guy, talk about a job. Hey, you, priest in training, you tie a rope around this goat's neck and walk it out into the desert and make sure it doesn't come back. Scapegoat. What is this? It takes two goats and a whole bunch of bulls and a whole bunch of sacrifices and ceremonies To do what Jesus has done on the cross, singularly, by himself, once for all. Jesus, once and for all, satisfies the wrath of... First of all, he didn't need any sacrifices for himself because he's holy. He's completely obedient to God's law. Secondly, he enters into the holy of holies. He, he He offers up himself in the heavenly courts of heaven, satisfying God's holiness, and in one sense, he's the goat that dies for the sins. He satisfies God's wrath. But now he takes our guilt. He doesn't, just, he doesn't just bear the punishment. He takes our guilt. Not only is he the goat that is sacrificed, he's the goat that takes our sins into the wilderness. And he, friends, this is beautiful. He removes our guilt as far as the east is from the west. He takes it away. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is sufficient. You don't need a priest. You don't need your pastor or your preacher to sacrifice for you. You you need Jesus. He has done it once for all. Jesus is sufficient. That's the high point of the argument here in chapter 7. And finally, and I end on this quickly, and then we're going to receive the table together. This is so beautiful. Then verse 28 says something really significant. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. So what's going on there? Okay, this is, I think, getting, getting to the, just this beautiful relational aspect of the gospel. He's basically just summarizing his argument. He's saying, look, the law had its purpose, and it appointed high priests who were insufficient, who couldn't quite get the job done. They never were meant to. And they did a temporary work, but ultimately they were pointing to God's promise to Abraham and to David that he would raise up another priest who would come. And that's what the word of the oath is. And he appoints a, this is really significant, he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, why wouldn't he use the whole argument here in chapter 7 has been about priests, how Jesus is a better priest But now, seemingly out of nowhere, the author of Hebrews uses the word, he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. A son. Where does this word son come from? Well, let's zoom back out. The point of Hebrews he's saying, don't go back, hold fast to Jesus, draw near to him. He's better. And here's the pinnacle of Jesus's betterness than anything in the old covenant is that Jesus is God's son. He brings us into a relationship. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is not merely that he satisfies God's righteousness and justifies us, but that he brings us into reconciliation as sons and daughters with God. Now, I know you're wondering when are we going to get to Romans chapter 8, and this is the point in the sermon where we get to Romans chapter 8. I want you to see this picture. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says that there is there now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Jesus is a better priest, okay? There's no condemnation. This is justification. We've been justified because of what Jesus as our high priest has done. Friends, I want you to see this. I want you to see this because so many of us have a transactional, sort of almost legal, uh, uh, technical relationship with the gospel and with God. And and, and that's not the heart of Hebrews. That's not the heart of the Bible. Justification is a glorious truth. It's a beautiful truth. And the doctrine of justification is, is that you can't justify yourself by your own righteousness because we're dead in our sins. We're, our, our righteousness is as filthy rag. So we need, we need somebody to justify us before a holy God, and that's Jesus. That's the whole argument of Jesus' superior priesthood. He's better. He's better than these Old Testament priests. So don't go back. Don't, don't lean on the law, which is merely a shadow. Trust in Jesus. A couple of weeks we talked about insufficient priests. Don't, don't lean on our, our own sort of you know, merits, the way that we want to prop ourselves up before God. Don't don't lean on those things. That there, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus, because he's the once and for all sufficient priest, he's justified us before a holy God. But friends, justification is not the sweetest part of the gospel, as glorious it is. Justification is not ultimately the goal of the gospel. Justification in all of its glory, that sinners would be made right with God through the sacrifice of his son Jesus Even that, as glorious as that truth is, is not the ultimate end of the gospel. Justification gives way to the more beautiful truth, which is the adoption, the reconciliation, the bringing into the family of God people who were formerly sinners. And that's what Paul gets to in the second part of Romans chapter 8. Listen to the middle of Romans 8, verses 14 through 17. He says, For all who are led to, remember, Justification is sweet. There's a better priest who's gone. He's once and for all offered up himself. Now you don't have to sacrifice animals. Now you don't have to practice your own righteousness. You can trust in Jesus alone for your righteousness. That's the glory of it all. But what does justification lead to? Justification leads to adoption, sonship, being sons and daughters of God. Verse 14 of Romans 8, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Ultimately, why is Jesus a better priest? And not merely, and I don't want to I don't want to minimize this in any way, not merely because he's a better priest, a holy priest, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Yes and amen but because he is a priest who is a son who does something more than finally and fully justifies. He does something more than handle our guilt before God. He brings us into the family of God, and he reconciles us with our father, and we will be with him as his forever. And God loves us not merely as a savior and as a justifier, but as a father and as a brother who's gone before us. Friends, that is so beautiful. That is so beautiful. That is so beautiful because the deepest need of the human soul is to be loved by God, our Father. And Jesus is a high priest who, yes, he's superior. Yes, he's sufficient. But he's also a son who's brought you into relationship with God if you trust in him. Amen. Which then leads us to communion that Christians have historically called the table. This is a meal, and it's a family meal. It's what Christians, brothers and sisters, do together. We, we, we take this supper because we are a spiritual family in Jesus. Even what we're about to do is getting at the very heart of the gospel, not merely our justification, but our adoption. Who is welcome at the family table? Sons and daughters of God. And so in just a moment, we're going to receive communion, which is our practice on the first Sunday of every month. And if you are a believer in Jesus, even if you're not a member of this particular local church, but you are trusting in Jesus, that's important, that you are trust that your hope is in Jesus, and you you are a Christian, your hope is in Christ, then you're welcome to this table as well. If you're not trusting in Christ, you you shouldn't receive this sign of your adoption because you're not yet part of the family of Christ. And we're grateful that you're here, and we pray that maybe even this service might be used to bring you into that relationship. But the Bible's very clear that this is something that only believers, part of the family of God, should do. And so as we stand in just a moment, and as people file out to find the usher that's holding the elements that's closest to them, I just invite you to just stay where you are and contemplate uh, the gospel and what it means. And if you want to speak to somebody in here about what it means to be a believer in Jesus more extensively or one-on-one, we'd be glad to do that. But this is a meal, friends. This is not just something that we do on the first Sunday of the month as a Christian ritual. This is a family meal which has both vertical and horizontal aspects. We, we, we look at this bread and we look at this cup and we realize... This is what Jesus has done for me. My sin is atoned for once and for all. He's satisfied God and he's taken my sin and he's taken it into the wilderness as far as the east is from the west. Therefore, there is no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus because I'm trusting in God no matter how badly I feel like I failed him this last week. Praise God. And not only is he my savior, but he's my father and Jesus is my big brother and he's my advocate that sits at the right hand of God. And as I come to the table, Jesus daily lives to make intercession for me. Verse 25 that we covered last week. And he's reminding the father, not that the father needs reminding, but there's just this beautiful fellowship in the Trinity that that's one of ours, Lord. That's one of ours. When we come to the table, not because of our righteousness, but because of our priest who's at the right hand of God, daily interceding for us. It's that beautiful vertical component of the Lord's table in the gospel. But Then there's this beautiful horizontal who we wait for one another. We care for one another. Christianity is not a solo act. This is why communion is something you do in the church family, not on your own. It's something that the church does, and we remember, I have a responsibility for these people, and so, oh, boy, boy, let it not be that I would just receive communion and then dart out the door afterwards, but I put my head on a swivel, and I want to love one another. One of the exhortations that Paul has, one of the criticisms that he has of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, is that they were just taking communion for themselves. They were taking this meal selfishly, and they didn't care about anybody else, so yes, I remember what Jesus has done, and then I look around, and I say, praise God, I got people here. I got people here brothers and sisters we are family we need each other and they're helping me follow and live for Jesus and so I want to know how they're doing and I want to be real for them and I want to be connected to the family of God and we take this as a family let's pray let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we come to the table and then the worship team will come back and lead us and then as you're ready as you're a Christian you're welcome to get the elements hold on to them And then Robert will lead us to receive together. Uh, Lord, we thank you that we have a high priest who who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. But in all his glory, even more primarily, he's a son who leads his brothers and sisters home. And that's what this meal represents. It's a home meal. It's a meal that Jesus prepared for us on the cross with his own body and blood. May we feast and be satisfied on Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.